0: Welcome to Do Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Alexa Tulet. Alexa, it's been a long time. What's been up?
1: Yeah. I, I like have this feeling of like being excited to see you. And I think that I may have missed you.
0: You're saying normally you're not excited to see me.
1: <laughs> normally like, oh man, I saw this guy. Uh, last oh, year. this
0: asshole again. What <laughs> the fuck? It's nice to be missed. I, I missed you too. Thank you. That's nice. So Please. Uh, before we do anything else, we have to hear about latest kitchen status. Is it done?
1: I was hoping that you would ask this. It's done. Um, so yeah, my my life has gotten way better. Um, now, I have this like delightful urge every time I go to make something to leave and go to a different room. And then I have the realization that like I don't have to do that. Like It's all in the same room now, which is pretty cool. Uh,
0: that is the best. How long do you think it's going to take you to uh relearn that you in fact have a kitchen
1: it's it's weird because there are like certain urges that like seem stickier than others so i like cannot learn that the granola bars are in the kitchen every time i'm like i need to get a granola bar i want to like so we had like basically made there's like this sort of like hutch in my dining room we had made that sort of into the pantry um and so like every time i want to go out there to get granola bars
0: you know, maybe there's something you can do to keep that feeling alive even longer. Like occasionally you can just move the granola bars out of the kitchen
1: for a day. Maybe maybe Megan and I can agree to do that to each other so we don't like anticipate what,
0: what the thing is. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah, the research says hedonic adaptation is pretty quickly going to rob you of this joy and you need to figure out a way to interfere with it.
1: Yeah, we need to mess with that treadmill. Wait, I have one more thing to tell you about the kitchen. So we did, like, t- try to do one thing ourselves, which is that um, we have a, like, pretty old oven, and it's, like, black and sort of cream-colored, uh, and the kitchen now is, like, pretty much white. I don't know. It's probably not exactly white, but whatever. Um, it's not cream-colored. And so we were like, okay, we don't want to get a new oven because, like, they wouldn't that wouldn't have been paid for by insurance. So we were like, okay, we will... Um, paint the oven so that it looks like matches with the kitchen which, which we were like okay we're going to paint it so that it's black right and right. like that will look fine sure. um and we like googled this you know as people who are like diy experts like yourself supposedly do and like looked up how to paint an oven and we got this like special enamel paint that's like very resistant <laughs> to high temperatures and we like spray painted the oven and it looked great um but turns out that's the really stupid idea because i don't know if we just like the paint that we got wasn't very good or what but it like comes off like so when there's like especially with grease like if the grease splatters it like so it looks super janky actually (laughs) and i'm really disappointed because i was i thought that was like a really like smart way to like not buy i mean our our oven is like perfectly good like we don't need a new one um but it looks quite bad right now (laughs)
0: well i'm sorry to hear that do you have a plan um my next step
1: is going to be to try to purchase the piece of metal that is on the top of your oven that's the main part that we painted that is black. Um I'm not sure if that's like a, a part that that places sell in isolation.
0: That is a great idea though. I guess alternatively that whole part must come off, right? Yeah. So you could Well, pretty much. You could take it to like a shop or something and be like, "Look, can you guys paint this for me?" Oh,
1: oh that's a good idea. Like, you could take it to a car painting right? shop. Right? Smart. <laughs> Anyone who has suggestions, I would invite any recommendations. Yeah, yeah. We must listeners have.
0: We must have li- listeners who are handy at stuff. So, um, <laughs> yeah, please uh, keep the suggestions coming. Alexa, let's talk about drinks. What have you got? I have
1: something—a beer called Orbital Cloud. Um, which is made by common bond brewers, which is in Montgomery alabama um and this is like pretty high on my list, so there's a a not a brewery like a package store slash um bar hangout type place in Tuscaloosa um called lusa and this is the probably the beer that I get the most often there. It's quite good,
0: nice, so I'm deviating from my plan, so originally um I had a visit from listener, friend of the show, uh, UC Irvine Professor Drew Bailey. I don't know if you've had the pleasure of meeting Drew, but he, he dropped by in Montreal. He was just there giving a talk. Oh,
1: nice. That's fun.
0: So he very kindly brought some beers, and I was going to drink one of them on the show today. And I did want to thank him already in advance for bringing those beers. But as you might be able to hear in my voice, I have a cold, and so I thought it would be better to drink a hot toddy instead of a beer. Oh, nice. Yeah, which is like still alcoholic, but it's good for a cold. And uh, I made it a little more Canadian, and also because I'm out of honey, uh, I made it with maple syrup instead of honey. Oh, very nice. And I think it's very good. I, I like my little modification. So anyway, I'm having that.
1: Okay, well, I guess I'll carry the weight of the the drink opening noise.
0: Cheers. 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 Mm. Good. Yum. Oh. yours is good. Great for the cold. Yeah. So I got a cold, actually, um, by going to a conference, which is my first real in-person conference since uh, COVID and everything. And, and this was CESP, the Society for Experimental Social Psychology. Uh, I got a cold. My roommate got a cold. Many people got covid I shouldn't laugh. That's not funny, (laughs) but it's a (laughs) tiny bit funny. I mean, I think everybody was fine. Um, People were on Twitter, like comparing notes, like, "Oh, did you get COVID? I got COVID. No, I didn't get COVID. I just got this cold." So lots of people are talking about this cold. It's like has very kind of specific symptoms. If we have cesp listeners, and afterwards you got a cold that like it starts with a really intense sore throat. um, Well, this is
1: like the beginning of the nerdiest mystery novel ever. (laughs) Somebody, (laughs) somebody has these specific cold systems and their partner finds out that they were secretly at CESP or something.
0: Alexa, have you ever been to CESP? Nope, I have not. Um, Tell me all about it. Well, okay. So it is the smaller of the two annual social psychology conferences. The big one, obviously, is SPSP, and that's by now thousands. And CESP is, well, like an order of magnitude smaller, um, like 300 to 400 normally. I don't usually go, mainly because it's during my teaching. Wait,
1: I think I lied. I think that I have been
0: to Oh, this. I'm glad it you're coming It was quite a while clean. ago. Yeah, well, do you yeah. remember where it was or when? Oh, uh,
1: I think I was in – can you go in your grad school?
0: You may go. It used to be you would have to be invited by a member.
1: I think that that's what I did. So I was probably in grad school. And then I think um, I think that uh, my friend Jason Plax uh, – Gave me uh, the green light to go. I see. I believe.
0: Yeah, yeah. So they've now. We'll get to this, but they've they've now gotten rid of that particular requirement. Yeah. So CESP, CESP is the smaller conference. It used to be invite only, uh, or uh, obviously members could go. But if you were a non-member and they, the membership was by election, so you had to be chosen. Um, if you are a non-member, you had to be invited by a member. So it was tougher to get into. And they didn't and still don't allow graduate students to give talks. So all talks are given by postdocs or by faculty. Um, And then they they have, you might remember, uh, this very long, uh, well, there's actually two lunches on consecutive days where they give awards. And it has sort of an awkward Uh feature of you're trying to eat your lunch. And at the same time, people are giving like, award acceptances, and everybody also gets introduced by somebody. Like if you win an award, like let's say Uh you were to win an award, I might introduce you. That goes on a while. So basically, it's this kind of long production of people talking while you're trying to eat your lunch. And it has sort of like a clubby and exclusive reputation that I think that they're now quite conscious of and trying to change. Uh Nevertheless, it still had like quite a bit of the clubby vibe, which... Uh I think it's just it's it's tough to get away from that when it's like the lunches people talking about like all the stuff that they did back in the day. And you know, I mean these are like nice talks if you know who's being talked about, right? But it'll just be like, I remember in 1985 we went to this thing with so and so. And if you don't know who so-and-so is, it's like, well, you kind of feel excluded. Right. Tough to get away from that.
1: So I mean, what does like Cesp do about the fact that their identity is sort of like the the like exclusive sort of maybe like hierarchical conference when it's like so uncool to be exclusive and hierarchical yeah like do they have to like change their identity or like i don't know how you accomplish that um that like brand in a way that could be cool but i guess people still go right there were people there
0: People people go. There were like 300 people there. Um, yeah, I mean, they're super worried about this because it is kind of a bad look these days to be exclusive and clubby. So um, they've updated the website to talk more about how they want to be inclusive. Um, you no longer need an invitation to go. That's a real change.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: I don't know. Like, what, what else are you supposed to do? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. I kind of feel like they're stuck with it. I mean, kind of what's nice about it is that it's small. Like, I do appreciate that. Yeah. It just, it yeah. feels so much less overwhelming. And the talks generally are quite good because it's it's postdocs and, and faculty, um, and they generally give pretty good talks, whereas... Uh, with grad student talks, I think that quality can vary, which is like not a knock on grad students. It's just they're learning, right? And these mm-hmm. are people who have more experience under their belt, have like given talks a lot and are generally like quite good at speaking and bring good data to show. So, as far as like the quality of the talks, I thought it was quite good, but uh-huh. I still get weirded out by the vibe. Would you go again? Uh, yeah, I usually go every few years just when it lines up or when I have some other reason to like want to be in that city. So, yeah, um, I. If anything, I'm now in a demographic that's more poised to appreciate the benefits. Like, I, I sometimes know who the stories are about. I'm all like, oh, that's nice. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. you get inculturated into this and you're like, oh, shared history. That's lovely. Whereas uh-huh. my first one, I was like, I've never heard of any of these people. I don't know what the hell this is about. Like, it was like actively aversive, right? It's like, oh, uh-huh. this is terrible. I'm never going back. And of course, that was Right, true. right.
1: Yeah, I mean it does sound nice to like have like stories we share as a field. Um, it would be nice to have that in a way that doesn't feel like name droppy or something like that. Um, but the field is so big. I like it's hard to imagine what that looks like going forward.
0: Yeah, so I that's that's right. I I don't know. I mean, these stories are all from the time when social psychology was like smaller and more insular. And now that we're like a bigger, more diverse field, like what's the 20 years on version of that story that everybody like gets those references? I yeah, uh-huh. I, I, don't know. So here's the last thing that, that sort of oh, yeah. bothered me. Um, and I feel like a little bit of a dick talking about this because it's like, okay, somebody got an award. And then it's kind of a dick move to be like, really, you gave that person an award? So they gave John Barge um, basically a Lifetime Achievement Award. Okay. And he seems like a nice guy. I've met him once or twice. He seemed like a very decent human. I'm sure his students love him. Given his research legacy and the kind of disaster that what I'm just going to call social priming has been, Uh seems super weird Uh to give this guy a Lifetime Achievement Award.
1: Yeah, so sorry. I didn't um I didn't react in my authentic way because I I saw in the show notes that you were going to mention this. Um but if I had reacted naturally, I would have been like, "What? Weird." Yeah. <laughs> or something like that. I don't know. I'm not a very good actress, but um yeah, I was surprised to see that. Um that to me, that feels like a a move that is sort of like deliberately enforcing the the like old school CESP brand that is sort of like we're not we're not going to like um, follow the trends you know tradition is important and like being established is something that we should recognize and things like that like it's yeah that it feels like a particular audience that would um, yeah receive that well I guess
0: yeah and just for those of our listeners who are you know, not social psychologists. Uh, John Barge is associated with not only, but kind of most recently, um, a body of work that has not replicated well, which purported to show that small, unconscious exposures to stimuli could cause big changes in people's subsequent behavior. So, You do a sentence on scrambling task or a word search task, I forget which it was, that has words related to the elderly, and you walk more slowly down a hallway subsequently. Right. And this has become known as social priming, although some people say, like, well, that's not a good descriptor. I I think it's a fine descriptor. The idea being you expose people kind of outside of their awareness to some stimulus, and then it has like a large downstream change in their behavior, causes a large downstream change. And this work, was super influential um caused a ton of like excitement and follow-up work and basically i think it's fair to say this was all a mirage that it was all selective reporting and p hacking none of this stuff was uh-huh. remarkable right right
1: yeah i mean that's my understanding i know that like some people make a distinction between um different types of priming right so like semantic priming versus social priming and my impression I'm, i don't know this literature well but is that that some types of priming are quite reliable, or or we're in the process of testing whether they're reliable, and people um sort of anticipate those like tests to work out. Um, so it might be like um, yeah, they're sort of like adjacent ideas that are pretty robust. Um, but actually, yeah, I mean, I also in my, in one of my uh, classes I teach. It's not a psychology class. Um, but it's a class about sort of like uh, scientific systems of knowledge and stuff like that. And we talk about the controversy surrounding social priming and there was like quite a bit of drama actually. So yeah, I don't know John Barge personally, um, but there was like an exchange between him and I think it was Ed Young. I could look this up um, about like a particular finding feeling to replicate. I think it was the, the walking slowly down the hall and being primed with old age and it was like not um diplomatic at all like it was like a pretty vicious fight yeah. um and at the time there weren't like i think not a lot of people's work had failed to replicate so we didn't have maybe like a script for graciously responding to this or maybe it was like much more common to see that as a very personal attack and things like that but um yeah it was a uh, it was dramatic
0: yeah yeah, it was it was not a gracious response. And I think you're remembering correctly that it was Ed Young, um, who's now a much more well-known science journalist, uh, mm-hmm. and at the time who wrote up a field replication of this elderly prime slow walking study, and and Barge wrote a really vitriolic and kind of dismissive blog post about the replication mm-hmm. and about him. So not like a model of great scientific behavior <laughs> in retrospect. And yeah. it's just striking to me to see you, you just don't see this research anymore at all. Mm-hmm. Um, like it used to be this was incredibly common in our yeah. like top journals, right? And I, I think you're right that it's important to be careful and to say, like, well, there's lots of priming that is very robust. So, for example, semantic priming, where if you see the word knife, then you're subsequently quicker to respond that the word, let's say, fork is a word as opposed to a non-word, right? Right. Um, mm-hmm. But the key distinction there is one, the thing that they're looking at at the DV is, is a simple behavior, usually like a button push or something that can be pretty mm-hmm. precisely measured. And, and that they do it over many, many trials. So you get these effects reliably, but they're like massively within subjects. So you see mm-hmm. many prime word response, prime word response as a, as a subject in those studies. And the social priming studies weren't like that, right? It was like a one-shot exposure to some prime and then kind of a complicated social behavior yeah. that was measured and that i just think like you don't see that style of work anymore at all i think it's just gone because like i don't think that you can get those kinds of results without p hacking
1: have you ever done a social priming study sorry this is maybe a little tangential
0: yeah actually yeah in grad school it was like a well it was sort of a, it was like a an unconscious Face priming and they were being primed with emotion phases, and we wanted to see whether they would, um, the subjects would pick up those emotions and report them consciously. So if Mm -hmm. I see, if I'm subconsciously exposed to a fear face, do I then say I'm a little more afraid? And uh, yeah, like I, we, I'm doing the air quotes, got it uh, once because I like p hacked the shit out of it. But then Uh it never replicated um, because Uh uh, I guess I just wasn't as good at p-hacking the subsequent studies in which we tried to get it again. And then eventually we got scooped uh, by Diedrich Stoppel, who (laughs) (laughs) it's great to be able to just make up your data. You can get any effect you want. So, So yeah, he's the one who ultimately showed that that was the case. Um He's a better p hacker than you. Yeah, exactly right. I was I mean, I, I I brought a knife to a gunfight, you know. I was doing like mm. the junior varsity <laughs> shit of just like, you know, <laughs> dropping some outliers. He's like, "What if we just invented the data?" <laughs> it's brilliant. It's like the galaxy brain. Anyway, um yeah, so I I feel like if you're giving somebody an award for their scientific legacy then hey it should count that they kicked off this whole subfield that ended up being just smoke and mirrors that i don't think anybody believes anymore and it it just like it does feel like a very weird choice that's sort of trying to make a point right it's like you know doubling down on yeah the the old way of doing things i would say so you were at this award ceremony i was yeah
1: so what was the introduction to this award slash speech? Like, Like, did it ignore the elephant in the room? Or was it yeah. just like...
0: Yeah, no, it was just completely glossed over. Like, it just oh, kind of weird. went on It was so weird. It was so weird. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, so he's made other contributions as well. Let's yeah. focus more on those. Yeah. But it just, it felt so strange to me.
1: I would have been really interested to see that. W- while acknowledging social priming, you know, just sort of being like, Hey, maybe we should be like grateful to this person who suggested this, like, yeah, who was sort of like instrumental in developing this idea using like all the methods that everybody else was using at the time that I don't know, like had such a huge impact on the field, even though now we like are very skeptical. Like I just would, I would be like curious to see how somebody could, could spin that.
0: Right. Like the guy had a lot of great ideas. Granted, they did not all pan out, but you know, who among us hasn't been wrong occasionally?
1: You got to know what's wrong before you know what's right or something, you know?
0: Exactly right. That's how science proceeds. Exactly. So I think having done that topic justice, uh, we can move on to our main topic, which is occupational prestige. Uh, so this is, uh, this topic was inspired by a new preprint that, uh, Floating around on Twitter recently called occupational prestige, the status component of socioeconomic status, and the authors are Bradley Hughes, Sanjay, your former uh, co-host, Black Goat co-hosts Roastava, yeah, yeah, Magdalena Lesko, and David Condon. Um, and this is uh, there's a preprint available of this paper, and, and basically what they're trying to do here is to create an index of the prestige of 1,029 specific occupations. The idea here is that social scientists often care about socioeconomic status. Uh, so we might ask about, for example, um, income. Uh, that's thought of as one component of socioeconomic status or SES. We often ask about education. So are you high school, college degree, postgraduate degree, et cetera. Um, we might ask people their subjective status. Uh, so uh, there's a measure called the MacArthur Status Ladder where you're asked to place yourself relative to other people in your country, higher or lower. That's something that's pretty frequently used. But we don't that frequently… Look at occupational prestige, which the authors here just define as the respect, admiration, and voluntary social deference accorded to an individual based on the perceived instrumental societal value of their occupation. So, the idea, kind of to put that in plainer language, being uh, you get some credibility for having some jobs, um, and you get, I guess, anti credibility maybe for having jobs that are lower on the totem pole. So if I'm on a first date, I'm like, I'm a neurosurgeon, that's good. If I say I'm a a, a, sewage waste disposal person, that's less good, right? So that's the idea. And and Uh what they're trying to do here is measure the kind of societal consensus about which jobs are higher or lower prestige. um, And then to look at some correlates of the prestige ranking of these different jobs. So like, what about a job is associated with it being seen as high versus low prestige? So Alexa, what, what's your general reaction to this paper?
1: Oh, what's my general reaction? Um, one of my reactions was, um, whether like people could be wrong about prestige. So I think that, um, when participants are answering these questions, there's a degree to which you're being asked to infer what society thinks, right? Um, so when you're talking about like how prestigious a, a job is, um, part of that question is asking like how society in general views a job, right?
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: And so I was curious, like whether um, there might be some some occupations where people's ratings of the prestige of that job are, um, yeah, out of sync with how prestigious they actually are. Right. So like, perhaps there could be like a lag or something like that. Um, so I think about things like, for instance, I think that, um, things like being like an electrician or a plumber or something like that, like when I was like a little kid, um, at least in my experience, I think we were, we were sort of like raised to think that that, Um, was not a very prestigious job. But like throughout my lifetime, I feel like that has changed quite a bit. And like, I I feel like those jobs get like quite a lot of respect and I think are like well compensated and things like that. Um, And so like, I wonder if there are uh, professions for which people think like, Oh, that's, I think that's a cool job, but I don't think that people generally think that's a cool job.
0: Yeah. So in this, study in which they gathered the prestige ratings, the raters are asked about their opinion about a job's prestige and right are given a scale that that doesn't say, well, we're, we're asking what other people
1: think. I think it's the word the prestige that I get caught up on. So like, but I don't know, maybe, maybe that does get around it. I guess I'm imagining like if you ask me – um how prestigious is it to be a high school teacher? i say low. But if you asked me, like, how impressed would you be if you went on a date with someone who was a high school teacher? I'd be like, very. That's, I think that's a really cool job. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, in answering a question, yeah, even if somebody asked me, like, what do you personally think about the prestige? I don't know. There's sort of like an element of, of like, public opinion in that word, I think.
0: yeah. So like in theory there might be some sort of pluralistic ignorance where like everybody thinks that everybody else thinks that let's say it's not prestigious to be a high school teacher but in fact everybody's mistaken about what everybody else thinks.
1: Yeah, that yeah, that was exactly my thought. Not that that um undermines the task of coming up with um occupational prestige rankings like I think that this is like a cool project. Um but it was just a thought that I had was like, are people um yeah, is there is there a way in which this list is getting at something slightly different than than what we would ideally be getting at?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're right that like when you ask about how prestigious is this job, it is a little bit Fuzzy. It, it, am I being asked about just like how impressed am I personally, or how impressive do I think that that job is socially? And I think you can argue that like really what they're asking is a little bit more of the latter, right? People's opinions about social beliefs. Um, but I guess pluralistic ignorance usually happens when there's a. Strong social norm that inhibits people from expressing their true belief. Right. Uh-huh. So the, the classic example is, you know, Princeton, which had like a very intense drinking culture. People were privately not that okay with it, but nobody wanted to say anything because you don't want to look lame. Uh-huh. I see less of a reason that in the case of occupational prestige, people wouldn't be willing to share their true opinions, in which case, why would people be systematically wrong?
1: I think that um pluralistic ignorance can also happen not because people are like motivated to give an inaccurate answer, but because they are genuinely mistaken about what other people think, right?
0: Or what other people do. I mean, the the way that the research that I know has thought about it has been, well, how why does the information not get out there, right? Why are people not willing to say, hey, you know, I actually feel this way. Right, and and the reason for that is that they self-censor because there's a strong norm against expressing their beliefs. Uh-huh. That's that, that's how you end up with an inaccurate perception. Otherwise, you know, you hear what people tell you, and you're not going to be people in on average aren't going to be systematically mistaken.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep, that can be true.
0: Hmm. But I I think it's a fair point though that like what's being asked about here is a little bit of like well you're asked to predict what other people think, right? Right yeah um so I guess one one thing that uh, is salient to me about this is like essentially like this is a methodological paper where they say like oh, well, it would be better if we measured this in addition to the other things that we measure about SES, and that obviously would involve some extra complication of like, well, you have to like ask them about their occupation in this finer grained way. That takes it's mm-hmm. an extra question, takes some programming. And do you do you actually buy yourself anything by doing that? Like does that does that help you answer your questions? Do you feel like they made that case that omitting this, like let's say we don't measure occupational prestige, that we're really you know, handicapping ourselves in our ability to answer questions that we that we care about.
1: Um, right. So they mentioned that, um, they call them the three pillars of SES, right? Household income, educational attainment, and then they say occupational prestige, which is the one that they're arguing isn't measured often enough. And so I guess the question would be, is just asking about household income and educational attainment enough to to get at the construct of SES um, without adding on occupational prestige. I mean, to sort of like get at this question in a roundabout way, w- another thought that I had when I was reading the paper was if I'm thinking about um, SES. Okay. So th- the way that they define, I guess, SES in the paper is uh, an individual standing in the social and economic hierarchy of society. And so if I want to know like, where does somebody stand in our social hierarchy? I think if I knew household income and educational attainment and I had one other question to ask, I don't think that I'd ask about their occupation. Um, I think there are other things that contribute to people's standing in the social and economic hierarchy. And I don't think these are typically thought of as part of SES. So maybe this is a definitional issue, but I think there's other things that I would ask about if i wanted to know like basically in some ways like how much privilege someone has um before asking about occupational prestige which we know is going to be pretty pretty highly correlated with educational attainment and income
0: yeah so i mean i one one argument that they make kind of against that is that at the individual level it's not that highly correlated right with, with income and um educational attainment. Uh so these are Rs uh, of like 0.2 to 0.3 ish. Uh, I guess it's correlated with uh education at 0.37. Okay, so that's you know a reasonably sized correlation. Um but but not not super high. So they're saying like, well no, this is like a unique um construct that isn't uh-huh. just overlapping with the other things. But I guess what I didn't see is well, okay, but then like what's the kind of downstream thing that you uniquely need right. occupational prestige in order to understand?
1: Right. So like, um, yeah, if if knowing about occupational prestige is adding additional information um, in terms of us figuring out somebody's position in the social and economic hierarchy, then it should be able to be it it should be able to be used right um for some kind of like social or economic end there's like a little bit of discussion of that in the paper like um something about like being able to to use your the prestige associated with your occupational or sorry the prestige associated with your occupation um like as a like a power move or something like that, or to get access to certain things, but I wasn't totally clear on that pathway.
0: Yeah, I I mean I think you can speculate in interesting ways about ways in which people might defer to you because of your occupation or treat you better, and maybe you have like a better experience in life through um, this prestige mechanism. So actually, I, I had a funny experience, which is. Uh, I right after SESP, I went to a like little mini workshop thing where uh, they had booked the room for me, the hosting institution had, and they had put on the uh, hotel room, doctor in bar. uh, And the guy who checked me in was like, doctor. And I was like, oh, no, no, not a real doctor, you know, because I Uh felt like it it was like stolen valor somehow, right? Like he was giving (laughs) me unearned uh prestige and I like felt the need to correct him to say like no 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 it's you know it's not like that. Um uh-huh. so I mean maybe that reflects like an intuitive feeling of like yeah there really are some occupational titles at least where you you do get treated more nicely. Like people are nicer to you. They're more likely to give you stuff. It, yeah. I mean this is all like kind of soft power, right? Like obviously this you know you can't as a, as a surgeon it's not like you can give people orders but but they're gonna voluntarily you know treat you better uh-huh. right <clears throat> yeah I guess to me i would ideally i would have liked to see some kind of empirical evidence to show like hey you know we're we can better explain this if we add occupational prestige into the mix of of predictors because like kind of given just the complication of measuring this um it i would I would like to know like, well, do we actually like improve our ability to, to detect relationships or test theories by taking this into account? And probably the authors of the paper would say like, well, that's beyond our scope or something. Maybe that's fair.
1: Yeah, maybe. Well, how do you see SES used most often in papers?
0: Uh, Often it's just a control variable. Yeah. Um, that's, how, that's what I see. Yeah. Uh, There's, are uh, things that so, for example, my colleague here at U of T, Stefan Cote, has looked at some relationships between SES and uh, pro-sociality. Um, it, that's a, an area that I know about a little, and it, you know, maybe there, I, I think that could improve the situation. I don't know that they typically in that in that literature look at prestige, and maybe that would help. Uh, you clear up some kind of inconsistencies because people get really inconsistent findings about whether like high SES people are more or less pro social. It mm-hmm. seems to be a bit of a of a mish, mishmash. Which you know maybe measuring prestige there would be would be helpful. Would like clarify some results.
1: Yeah, I guess. I mean, yeah, it's possible that throwing occupational prestige into the mix could um could make SES a more Sort of like sound covariate in these studies, where um, I think it's pretty common that you might see a correlation between between two um, two variables, and someone could wonder like, "Oh, is is SES going to explain that
0: relationship?" Right? Yeah. Although there, uh, this is super cynical, but like. As, as the researcher who wants to claim it's not just SES, you're not super interested in measuring SES in a better way. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's true. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But, you know, as a reviewer, you could demand it, right? You could say, like, look, I really feel like SES is an uh, uh-huh. uh, important alternative explanation. You really have to do a lot to rule it out and, like, look at prestige as well. I ain't no more, couple of- back. This is the part of the show where I tell you where to contact us. We are on Twitter at 4 Pod, where you can at mention or DM us. Uh, If you'd rather email, our show's email address is forbearspod at gmail.com. That will go to all three of us. Finally, our website is forbears.com. You can listen to any of our episodes there. You can drop us a line there as well if you would like. If you are enjoying the show, please do take a sec to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice just helps other people discover the show. Um, and we like to read them. So, uh Alexa, do we have any follow-up?
1: Actually, I think that we were going to um talk about a response that we got from a listener um in response to our episode where we talked about um individualism. Um and we talked like specifically about an article that talked about this um, in in Nordic countries compared to in the United States. This is from uh, listener Magnus Svard.
0: I think, think it's I'm saying that right, Svard. Svard. I I looked it up and it, well, I can't really do it, but it was like Svard. Okay.
1: <laughs> okay, that's going to be better than I'll do. So I'll just try to do a good job of reading the the message. Okay. Um, So Magnus says, since I am Swedish living in Norway, I thought I would um, respond to to your request for um, feedback on the episode. Um, It was quite strange to hear your characterization of the Nordic countries. I don't feel that I recognized much. For example, in the long discussion on relationships, it almost sounded like Scandinavians don't invest emotionally or otherwise in relationships because we are so financially able to end a relationship. I know that's not what you meant. I think Alexis said something toward the end, like, you stay because you want to and not because you have to, uh, which is how I would put it. In Scandinavia, it does not cost anything to go to a university. There are some downsides of that, but the upside is that anyone, irrespective of social background, can get a good education. I am pretty sure that poor people are more reluctant to take huge loans to get an education even if they could. They might not know any highly educated people that could assure them that they will gain from that. If the state pays, it means that instead of individuals taking the risk, the risks are mitigated, but in practice, it is still a loan. I got my education for free, meaning that I could live a decent life when I was young, and now that I earn more, I pay more taxes to give the next generation a decent life as young adults. In practice, I have taken a loan from myself.
0: Yeah, I thought that was an interesting perspective, the loan from yourself idea.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it sounds kind of um, lovely, this, this cycle, uh, that they describe,
0: yeah, so yeah, he did he did like the way that you put it, which I think is also the way that the article that you initially were reading from was was talking about it, that you stay because you want to, not because you have to, so I guess we can count that as some confirmation for what the article was saying, like here 's a real Scandinavian who agrees,
1: yeah, I think that that 's right, I think that the article was trying to convey that. You might have the mistaken idea about the Scandinavian system, um, that it is like uh, removing an interconnectedness or something between people, um, but in fact, that that would be a misunderstanding, right that that it just like provides people with more freedom.
0: Yeah and Magnus uh wrote some other stuff as well that I didn't put in the show notes because his email was quite long but he talks about ways in which uh Swedish people really are expected to help each other out so like uh a kid's school will have uh, a yearly event that you're strongly encouraged to go to where they get together and like do kind of labor around the school to make it nicer um uncompensated uh people will help each other move or help each other with like small home repairs because it's so expensive to get somebody uh, to do that stuff for you. So there's lots of ways in which, you know, Swedish people r- really are like highly, uh, interdependent.
1: Uh huh. Right.
0: Yeah. Interesting stuff. So yeah. Um, we love to hear from listeners, uh, anybody yeah. who would like to write in and give us their perspective, please, uh, feel free. Uh, you don't even have to be Scandinavian. <laughs> Perfect. Alexa. um, has your beer situation changed since we last spoke? It has not okay., uh, just to update you, I have um freshened up my hot toddy. This is like I'm feeling a little buzzed uh, already, and there's like kind of kind of put a lot of whiskey in this, so we'll see this could be interesting. We'll see how this goes. Um, I wish
1: the the listeners could see you right now. like his um his facial expressions and hand motions corroborate him saying that he is like a little tipsy. I, right. I
0: look drunk already? Seriously? <laughs> Shit. At some point, maybe we should do one where we like actually record ourselves so people can see this this play out. But uh, well, actually, on second thought, maybe not. So so I don't know about you, Alexa, but like one thing that I really wanted to know from this paper yes, is how prestigious is it to be a social psychologist? <laughs> I was
1: hoping to learn that too. And I did not um, learn it. No, and yeah, right so okay before before we start talking about the jobs that they do describe and where they fall, did you have any intuitions about um, or or just like how would you answer the question, What is the most prestigious job?
0: Mm, yeah i I would have guessed uh medical um brain surgeon or alternatively, rocket scientist. Uh-huh. Okay, So I feel like my intuitions um, were pretty close.
1: Are those the same as I like this, like uh, this example of uh, how you would react to being on a date with someone and them telling you their occupation. So are those the occupations you'd be most impressed with if, Wow, well, that's what they did. N- not
0: necessarily because, like, let's say if she's like, "I'm an aerialist," I'd be like, "Wow, that's fucking awesome." It's it's yeah. almost like that's more immediately impressive because you can you know you watch somebody do it or they could like maybe do some amazing uh-huh. feat right in front of you, whereas with the brain surgeon, that's hopefully not going to be the case.
1: Uh huh. Right. Yeah. Like, I think the things that I would be more impressed by. Um. Yeah. I don't know. Brain surgeon would be like above the midpoint surely, but like I don't think it would be at the top. I would be really impressed if somebody were like a really good author or like a rock star.
0: <laughs> wow. That's uh I, that's weird. You must be the only person on earth who's impressed by rock stars. Yeah, right. Yeah. Where is that on this list? Yeah, no. That's that's true. <laughs> it's it's not <laughs> It's you know maybe in the the dating context, there's something a little bit different going on, I don't know, maybe,
1: yeah, but like I th- I feel like artists I was left sort of wondering where where artists fall, yeah, um because we don't yeah, we don't see the entire list, of
0: course, yeah, that's right, that's right i I would be very curious, um, yeah, I mean, this. Well, anyway, we could go down this whole road of like, well, is the highest prestige occupation necessarily the thing that's most attractive in a romantic partner? I would say maybe not, right? So maybe something that's like quirkier, but like lower prestige, or perhaps something that shows like a valued quality, like yeah. caring, right?
1: Right. Yeah, Which kindness. is like not correlated.
0: Or oh, wait, is it not
1: correlated or is it? Uh, it's basically not correlated, right? The, with the, prestige, the interpersonal, the interpersonal component. component. Yeah, no, it's basically correlated <laughs> That's zero So lame. That's so depressing.
0: Yeah, yeah, I know. So yeah, we we should talk a little bit um, more about like well, we'll get to what these components are and like how we um, think we want not to interpret them. So so basically, um, just to tell you guys about how this. You know, analysis worked. Um, they got these prestige ratings uh, of these different occupations, and now you can have a look at you know what are the kind of highest and lowest prestige occupations, and these are in the paper in a table that I can find here. Um, so uh, the highest prestige occupations are. A surgeon, neurologist, aerospace engineering, biochemist, uh, neuropsychologist—not regular psychologist, physicists. I feel like people just don't even know what that is. <laughs> just stick "neuro" in front of your job title. Yeah, you know, seriously, right? exactly. Um, and then the um, sort of at the uh, at the middle, you have uh, electrician. Uh, Administrative Manager, Human Resources Manager, uh, Wind Turbine Service Technician. That's a great one. It's very specific. Uh, Uh And then at the bottom, you have things that are uh, are seen as unskilled or else uh, gross or otherwise unpleasant jobs. So uh, you got septic tank servicer, uh, parking lot attendant, dishwasher, telemarketer, fast food cook, slaughterer and or meat packer street vendor right right so i mean what does it feel like those rankings reflect like what is it that all the top ones have in common and so i
1: mean this is where we sort of like get into the i guess the the components i mean without even going down that road yet i guess the top certainly include a lot of education. Um, And then I guess there are jobs that we associate with their jobs. We associate with intelligence, I think. So being like um, in medicine or in engineering feels like stuff that, you know, some of the like material that you need to learn to do those jobs feels like challenging and maybe like not that accessible to everyone. Um, And then also, I guess there's a component of like doing good, particularly with medicine, possibly also with engineering. I guess you're like building things, solving problems. Hypothetically, I'm sure you can use engineering for good or for evil. Um, so I think that's like what's going on with the the top 15. Um, yeah, things that we see as really smart and yeah, sort of like having a positive contribution.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that there is a little bit of that like moral component there, right? Because like certainly lawyer involves a lot of like critical thinking skills.
1: Yeah, and they're not there.
0: They're not there. I was expecting them to be there. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think because
1: it's- like with a stereotype, I think of when your like parents pressure you to have certain professions as like they're pleased if you're going to be a doctor, or an engineer, or a lawyer. Like, yeah. That's my.
0: Yeah, no, I yeah, yeah, that's right. But I, I think there are some negative lawyer stereotypes, and so that dings them, right? They're seen uh-huh. as less morally good, whereas a doctor, like in addition to having to go through a lot of education and needing to be smart, you also are helping people. Uh-huh, right.
1: So for the, yeah, the bottom 15, you sort of, I think, alluded to this already, but these seem to include jobs that we think of as requiring I guess like a little training and also perhaps jobs that you might think of as not very desirable. Um, yeah. So maybe there's like an inference about people um, like not having other options if they have those jobs.
0: Right. So like telemarketer, it's like, Oh, who would be a telemarketer if they had any other options in the world? So people Make a perhaps rational inference that somebody who's a telemarketer just like wasn't able to get any other job. Yeah, it's it that's different. That interesting that there's these different dimensions along which jobs can be undesirable, right? So some are just like kind of physically gross, like septic tank servicers, and some are like just socially like disliked, like everybody hates telemarketers, right?
1: Uh huh. Yeah. Right. Are those like consistent with the jobs that you would least like to have?
0: Um, I think more or less. Well, it, I mean, this is obviously like confounded with a bunch of other stuff, but like, just assuming that you would get paid the same amount, like we we live in a communist utopia where everyone gets paid exactly the same, like which of these jobs seem most attractive to me? Um, I don't know. Precious metal worker seems kind of cool. That's one of the middle ones. <laughs> you know that seems yeah, great. right, yeah, um a lot of these uh, the bottom ones they they involve uh contact with gross substances uh or that you have to like it's hard physical work, although coat room attendant that's that seems sort of easy,
1: yeah, I mean, if you got paid the same, right as everybody else
0: right, yeah, right,
1: that wouldn't be so bad, right, right, yeah, if you equalize,
0: yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly.
1: And if you equalize pay, like there's no way I'm taking a job in medicine. Yeah, Absolutely no, just, the,
0: just the, the stress and the, you know, you might kill somebody.
1: Yeah, it sounds gross. It sounds hard.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. gross, right? You're cutting people open, potentially. Yep. Yeah. I never understood that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, so also though, wind turbine service technician, does he get to climb up on those things?
1: Oh, that sounds nice.
0: Yeah. That sounds... That sounds cool. I thought it might be dangerous. You might fall off. <laughs> <laughs> it's possible. I probably would fall off. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not great with heights, if I'm being honest. So maybe that one's out for me. Yeah. 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 Well, precious metal worker it is.
1: Where do you think um, social psychologist would fall?
0: Oof. Well, we're, de- we're definitely, we're, we're below biomedical engineer, which is the bottom definitely. one of the top 15. Yeah. I think we're probably somewhat above physical therapist, assistant, or electrician. Um, yeah, I I put us in like at 75. I'm actually very curious now to go check this.
1: Uh-huh, yeah. And you probably can check this, right? So like they've-
0: Well, I wasn't able to get access to the full data. They're on an OSF page, but it's like locked right now.
1: Right, which like likely, I think this will be eventually information that we can find out, yeah. but maybe not while it's a preprint. Or at least like not not universally accessible without permission.
0: That's right. That's right. So yeah. well, we'll have to come back and update our listeners. Yeah, about where exactly social scientists uh-huh. are in all of this?
1: I w- but I fall in the category of former social neuroscientists, so I think I'll probably. Oh, be
0: than you. oh, that's that's <laughs> almost as good as neuropsychologist. <laughs> yeah, so you're you're that's a lot like neuropsychologist. Clearly, several notches above me in occupational prestige. Yeah, likely. I think and, so. And I ought to be deferring to you. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I should.
1: I should get some S.E.S. benefit. I, I, prestige, I'd like that right? you just
0: like immediately agreed with that, like no hesitation. <laughs> You're like, yeah, actually, why haven't you been deferring to me already? <laughs> yeah, it's always
1: really annoying when people.
0: Yeah, know. right. Who is this guy thinking that he's as prestigious as I am when I'm a former what was it, neuroscientist? Social neuroscientist. Social neuroscientist. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Well, you'll you'll receive your proper deference in the future. I promise. Would you like to move on to talk about well, what are the attributes of high prestige versus low prestige jobs?
1: Yes, let's talk about that. So, so in the paper, they use um, principal components analysis. Um, to basically identify three broad types of job characteristics, um, and this is kind of like getting at the question of what are the most prestigious jobs like, what are the least prestigious jobs like, um, and so they identify these like these three categories: um, physical ability, like jobs that are physically demanding, so that like require um, good reaction time or depth perception, other kinds of physical prowess. Um, and then critical thinking. So for example here, like complex problem solving abilities or deductive reasoning abilities, and then the third category is interpersonal. Um, so this would include things like, uh, concern for others, um, self-control and things like that. And so what the authors do is they, um, like evaluate whether each of these characteristics is, uh, correlated with, um, the prestige of the, The jobs. And so, as we've sort of already alluded to, um, the interpersonal component was like not strongly related to job prestige, like basically no relationship. Um, The critical thinking component is perhaps unsurprisingly very highly, very strongly related um, to prestige. And the physical component is maybe surprisingly, like slightly negatively associated with
0: prestige. Yeah. 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 Um, So I don't find that super surprising. So I think the fact that it's negative makes sense in light of mm, these like jobs that require less education, tend to be working with your body. But that it's not strongly negative also makes sense because you need to be coordinated to be a surgeon or to be an airline pilot. You know, there's like lots Mm -hmm. of high prestige occupations that require some physical. Ability, so I can see how mm-hmm. that kind of like washes out. Um, we should just say that these um, these occupational features are from a government database, so they didn't collect these data. But there's a government database in which people have rated how important is each of these characteristics to doing this job, and so that's right. the the ratings that they're working with here, right? And then so they're right. just doing this. Um, this principal components analysis that says like okay well if this thing was rated as important for doing a job you know what what else was rated as important for doing that same job and like how do those cluster together and that's how they come up with these these three components um and then they do a second analysis where they look at the specific job characteristics that are most highly associated with prestige and uh they do this in like a slightly fancy way to get basically like a more uh robust and generalizable estimate but essentially it's just a correlation between these factors and um prestige uh and so if you look at the most highly correlated uh characteristic it's requiring different kinds of reasoning critical thinking complex problem solving reading comprehension active learning Science, which is which is a great characteristic, just just <laughs> requires science, yeah. Um, judgment, decision making, systems analysis, writing, analytical thinking, and if you look at the job characteristics that are most strongly negatively associated with occupational prestige, it's physical stuff. Um, trunk strength, dynamic strength, stamina, static strength, gross body coordination, speed of limb movement, etc. So it's like basically like being able to use your body well. Those are the most strongly negatively associated characteristics. So, what do you make of that?
1: Yeah, I mean my, I guess the first thing that or the first place my head goes is like is this fair? I mean, yeah, we like seem to prize critical thinking so far above like physical abilities and maybe in some cases I don't know like I don't that that feels unfair to me um so like perhaps in some cases there you develop your critical thinking skills and so we should admire somebody who like really exercises these things but you can certainly develop your physical abilities as well um and yeah I don't know maybe maybe people think that being good at critical thinking or like just to having a high IQ or whatever is like impressive, but physical skills are also like really impressive. And this reminds me of, I think like a reaction or um, a description some people um give to the university of Alabama, which, which is to sort of like accuse the school of being, Um, too focused on athletics and not focused enough on academics. And, um, yeah, that always struck me as having this sort of like underlying bias against physical abilities in favor of whatever, like mental abilities or critical thinking skills or something like that. And I don't know. I mean, lately I've been to a lot of, um, sports events, so I went to like a football game a couple of weeks ago and I went to um I watched like some of the men's tennis players um play in a tournament and um there was also an assisted tennis tournament recently and like a, a women's sports or sorry a women's soccer game. Um and these people are just like incredible and it requires like so much training and diligence. I I, I don't know. I feel like um. Yeah. Physical ability is really underrated. Um. And I would be really curious to see where athletes fall on the list. And athletes might fall like quite high. So maybe that's like a not a fair example of a job that requires physical abilities. But yeah, I-, I think we underrate it.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's actually like I feel like being an N- NBA player is pretty prestigious. Yeah. That maybe that doesn't be, make right? the, that doesn't make the list. I don't know. Um. Yeah. Yeah. So like. Looking at this uh, list of characteristics that's associated most strongly positively with prestige, it really does look like cognitive ability. It's like these are just different Mm -hmm. reflections of cognitive ability. So if you're like a job requires high cognitive ability, it's most prestigious. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I do think that like that would be testable, right? Like maybe you could move around people's perceptions, particularly of like jobs that they don't know super well. So you'd be like, well... You know, this being this particular kind of surgeon either requires like a lot of cognitive ability and problem solving, or it's just kind of like rote, like following uh, a playbook and uh, just requires, you know, coordination and the ability to like execute, you know, steps. Right. And would people be like, oh, now, and now I'm downgrading this occupation mm-hmm. on prestige because you don't need to be smart in order to do it.
1: Right. And I also wonder if there are times when things are getting like binned as critical thinking, like jobs that require a lot of critical thinking or whatever, when actually like a lot of it is interpersonal. Like, so for instance, our jobs, right? I think typically people think of our jobs as like requiring a lot of critical thinking abilities and whatnot, but there's a huge interpersonal component, right? Like the like networking component. And then the interpersonal component that's involved in, Um, giving good talks and giving good lectures and just like convincing people that you're smart and have something to say, you know? Um, but I bet like all of that stuff gets sort of like, um, yeah, categorized as critical thinking related stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There doesn't seem to be like a, I guess, so I I guess in terms of the, um, in, in terms of the factor analysis those that's those sort of social skills would go on interpersonal component which aren't really that component isn't consistently associated with prestige at all um, but yeah I, I mean I, I think you're right that like maybe that stuff is less visible and therefore easier to overlook I, I will say though like so I had an experience today which is I um, you know, so I've had this cold and I've been feeling kind of just like slow and run down. And then like last night I took NyQuil and for whatever reason that the stuff that's in NyQuil to like make you sleep, like the antihistamine, like I get really bad, like next day effects from it. I just feel so slow. And so I'm, I was like, what I'm saying is I, I I was even dumber than, than usual today for most of the day and I, I hope to have re- like recovered now for our recording um but it, I I was in a dissertation defense like i I was on um the students committee she did great congrats to her she passed but I felt like it was so hard for me to uh-huh. do my job like I, uh-huh. I just like I, I kept get, like not really making any sense and my questions would sort of ramble and like I feel really bad for her at one point she was like well she's like obviously trying very hard to interpret me in a way that made sense. She was like, well, I'm not sure I follow what you're asking, but like, I think what you want to know is this, you know? And it was just like, wow. Like if I'm just, I mean, I, I feel like I was like, probably like 15% dumber than normal. And that made it Uh really hard for me to do my job. So like, Uh I do think that there is like a big piece of it that does depend on being like as, as smart as we are, however smart that is, because like I was dumber today and it had a very bad effect on my job performance. I feel.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I see what you're saying, but you don't think that, yeah, I guess it just depends like what you sort of categorize as cognitive ability. Um, because like you're, you being slower could also be you being more interpersonally, um, shitty, right? You're like, just like less. Yeah. Less observant. Less of, like charming.
0: What, right. <laughs> impossible <laughs> 15% less charming right 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 yeah yeah I, I mean right so i think that's uh i think that's a great question um, and I, my i think because of you know as you see from these the way that job prestige is so much seems to be a function of like do you have to be smart to do the job I think that people in general are going to overweight the importance of cognitive ability relative to non-cognitive skills and success. Mm-hmm. I think that's right.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's my guess too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Know. Yeah. So, so the last thought I had about this is, you know, I, I read this Book uh, a while ago called "The Cult of Smart" by Freddie DeBoer. We can throw a link to that in the show notes, which says it makes a lot of like provocative arguments. But the part of it that still sticks with me is like he's he was talking about like how much intelligence is valued um, mm-hmm. versus versus other kind of skills and abilities. Yeah. And he talks about how a parent might readily say, "Oh, my kid's not very athletic. My kid's not very coordinated." Yeah. But saying my kid's not very smart is like so taboo, right? Yeah. And it's like, well, you know, there's no intrinsic moral worth to being smarter or less smart. And for other characteristics, I think we recognize that, right? Like, I'm not intrinsically worse because I can't dribble a basketball, but intelligence has this special status for us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this is why I feel like it's sort of, in some ways, it feels unfair. Like, when you think of the the potential reasons why we would value intelligence so much or or like give it this almost moral weight it's like it does feel like we associate some sort of personal responsibility with it which i think sometimes people wouldn't say if you ask them directly but the just the fact that we like admire people who are smart suggests that we think like they did something to to get there or whatever like they they like deserve this admiration or yeah. Um they're like responsible for it or something. Um and then like yeah, I don't know, when you start to think about okay, well maybe we like admire it because it's useful. Um and that seems more possible to me, but I also think that that other kinds of skills are really useful. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah, we've this is like so so socially ingrained that um that it's really, really important to be smart and that, yeah, it would be like an insult to imply that somebody wasn't smart.
0: Yeah. Well, although to argue against myself a a little bit, I mean, it does seem like there's other characteristics that are just equally controllable or uncontrollable that we might admire somebody for. Like, I think you can admire somebody's like athletic achievements, for example. And, um, of course, that takes work to develop your capabilities, but also there's just a substantial component that you're born with, right? That's just luck. Or um, perhaps somebody's social uh, abilities, their charm, their beauty. Those are all things that we might think are admirable, that to some extent, like, you know, you're born with it or you're not. So I, I, th- I guess what I'm saying is fundamentally it's all unfair.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I would agree with that. Although I feel like, um, yeah. I feel like the the intelligence or the like cognitive ability component is just weighed so much more heavily than these other things.
0: Yeah, that I 100% agree with. Um, although, I mean, I will point out that we are in a very certain bubble. Like, you know? Right. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah I hope there are like um, circles where people are like, yeah, my kid's dumb. But I'm not going to say that they're bad at football.
0: Yeah, no, it's like being cool and good-looking and good at sports. I mean, actually, this, you're describing what my high school was like. It's much more important than being smart for your social status. Great. Okay, this is giving me, giving me hope. There's hope. There's hope for the youth. Uh, Alexa, have we covered this paper the way that you wanted to? Yes. Awesome. Um, I'm feeling a little buzzed, I'll be honest. <laughs> How do I look? Do I look drunk? (laughs) You look a little steadier than before, actually.